I would encourage you to turn in your Bible or the one in the pew rack in front of you to the text that Dave read a few moments ago from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If this is your first time here, you need to know that this summer we're in the midst of a series of teaching messages on the book of 1 Corinthians, plowing our way through in an expository sort of way pieces of the text systematically together. And we find ourselves today at chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Now, our immediate text today is part of a section of Paul's letter to the Christians who are living and worshiping in the great city of Corinth. And he's dealing with things, problems, situations uh, that have cropped up in their worshiping life together. Last week when we gathered here, we looked together at the first uh, of these issues, the whole issue of men and women in the worship public assembly and some of the abuses that were going on. And Paul's primary concern was that the line of distinction and the principle of subordination, which is from the very beginning of the created order, uh, was not being followed in public worship. And the lines were being blurred between male and female. And there were some, uh, some women in the church there that were apparently feeling their oats a bit and were um, uh, trying to make a statement. And in doing so, they created uh, a shame to themselves, the church, and its witness in the city of Corinth. Some of them had chosen as a way of making a statement and objecting to what they thought were needless traditions, a statement uh, by removing their prayer shawl, their prayer veil. Some of them went so far as to cut their hair short to look like a man, to make a point that there is no difference between men and women. We are all the same. And yet Paul comes back at them and reminds them of the creation order and the need for rule and order even within Christ's church. Now the next issue that Paul deals with, uh, that which we're looking at today, another issue of division and factions Uh, was spilling over into their worshiping life, had to do with their celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, you need to remember, this church was plagued by division. They were fighting about everything. Uh, They they were having um, a spat about almost every issue you could think about. There were divisions that centered around The preachers of the church, the ones that they liked more, I like Paul, no, I like Cephas, no, I I like Apollos. Uh, There were lawsuits uh, where one member of the church was suing another in the courts of Corinth. There were convictions, different convictions about how to handle divorce and remarriage. There were uh, distinctions and differences among members of the body about What do we do about eating meat that's offered up to idols? And all of these divisions of opinions that they had were resulting in hard feelings, such that when they came together for worship, 
it was difficult to get the brothers and the sisters speaking to one another because they'd really become resentful of one another. And there was no love and there was no unity in the church. Now, some of the divisions that the church was experiencing were made worse by uh, matters related to class and wealth in this particular congregation. Remember, in those that had come to faith in Christ to follow the Messiah, there were not only former Jewish uh, uh, worshipers, but there were Grecian worshipers as well. And amongst both these Jews and Greeks, there were some who were really quite wealthy and aristocrats in Corinthian society. There were also some who had no wealth or no status in Corinthian society. And so what you had being set up was a a kind of a war between those who were well-to-do and the poor in the congregation, between the haves and the have-nots, and this all led to some abuse in their worship together. And so Paul says, this has to be fixed, because you're going astray, you're moving away from the foundations that I laid when I was there, uh, bringing you the good news of the gospel. Now, you also need to understand that the Lord's Supper in the early church in the first century was uh, a normal and regular part of their Christian worship. It would have been at the heart, the centerpiece of their worship experience. And this was typically celebrated each time they came together, not in isolation, but the Lord's Supper would have been largely celebrated in the context of a larger meal, which uh, was known, at least in some places, as the agape feast. The word, the Greek word agape means love. It was a love feast. And there are still some Christian societies that today, even when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, they share together in what they call a love feast. The Moravians are quite famous for this. Uh, They have a love feast and they serve hot coffee and sweet buns before they have the Lord's Supper. I kind of like that tradition. I I could go for a good cup of joe right now. But the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper in the context of this feast, which celebrated their life together as the people of God, a community of faith, followers of Jesus. And we don't know how the Lord's Supper, there's, there's so little information for us, both in Scripture and uh, in early writ, to tell us how all the details fit together into that feast, whether the love feast was first and then they celebrated the Lord's Supper, or whether it came right after the feast, or some say that the wine came at the beginning of the love feast and the bread was broken at the end of the love feast. It's not my purpose this morning to take time and and try to sort all of that out. Instead, my purpose this morning in looking at the text before us is to help us to understand that there was a great abuse going on in the worshiping life in Corinth, and it was impacting the vitality of their life together and was ripping away at the fabric of their relationships one with another. Now, uh, you also need to understand historically that uh, there were no great church buildings and facilities like the one that we enjoy here. They would have instead gathered in homes to worship. And uh, often someone who had a larger home would volunteer 
His home to be the site for the congregation to meet for their worship service. They were house churches. And in these Corinthian homes, uh, there was not enough room for everyone to sit around a table to enjoy the love feast in the dining room. In fact, the dining room probably would have, in most Grecian homes, would have only accommodated a dozen or so people. But in each Grecian home, architecture of that period uh, tells us that in addition to the dining room of the home, there was an atrium to it, kind of a front porch, a colonnade. And that would have been a space in which a, a larger number of people would have been able to gather. The problem that was happening in Corinth was this, and prompted Paul's uh, rebuke and reproof to them, that the wealthy homeowner had, and you can understand how this would happen, had invited his special friends, his cohorts, to join him at his table in the dining room, again, only 10 or 12 or 14 there, and separated from the people who were seated out in the atrium, seated and on folding chairs and TV trays. The homeowner did not provide the food for the whole assembly in the love feast, but instead it was kind of like a huge potluck supper. This was the original potluck supper, and everybody brought what they had to contribute to the meal. Well, you can imagine how sumptuous the food must have been that the wealthy people brought to be shared around the table in the dining room. I mean, there was no hamburger helper over here. But out here in the atrium were some of the brothers and sisters who did not have uh, the wealth and the class and the rank and the status of those folk over in the dining room. Uh, some of them weren't getting anything to eat. They didn't have anything to bring. And the people over here were being rather selfish and self-centered and, and kind of hogging it all to themselves and not sharing with the folk out in the atrium. And so there was kind of a class war going on within the church. And hard feelings were, were kind of getting cemented in between some of the brothers and the sisters. And, and they weren't waiting till everybody gathered at the home to start the love feast. No, some would arrive early and they would uncork the bottle of Welch's grape juice and, <laughs> and they would drink it and become drunken such that when it came time to celebrate the Lord's Supper, some of them were drunk as skunks and didn't even know what was going on. And there were some over here out in the atrium that had their nose proverbially uh, pressed against the glass saying, but what about us? Aren't we family? <laughs> Can't we get a bite, a morsel to eat? And so Paul says, I'm, I'm hearing about this in your worship, the centerpiece of your worship, this grand demonstration of Christ's love and the unity that we should be sharing in the body of Christ where all the barriers that Christ has torn down and broken down, we should be at the Lord's table. We should be remembering Jesus. It shouldn't be about the food, remembering the roast beef that was so good the last time we gathered together, or the cherry pie that somebody had eaten before I got a chance to have a bite. 
You see, what had become a problem, as so many of the problems in Corinth was, they had become very selfish and self-centered. They were worried about themselves and they weren't thinking about anyone else. They were thinking of themselves and their stomachs. But unfortunately, they weren't thinking about Jesus. And Paul reminds them, when you come together in this meal, I have no praise for you for the way you're acting. You're acting selfishly and in an ungodly way. And it's obvious to me, based on the reports I'm getting, it's obvious to me that you've forgotten about the significance of this meal and what it's all about. And so Paul reminds them, brings them back to center, reminds them about the the focus of this feast and how on the night that Jesus was betrayed, how He took a loaf of bread and broke it apart and said, this is my body which is for you, and then proceeded to, to distribute that bread amongst them so they could all partake of that as one people sharing the one loaf. Paul wanted the Corinthians to remember that. And when they came together in the Lord's Supper to think about the Lord broken at the cross in order to reconcile them to God and to unite them as family together with all the distinctions and barriers washed away, brothers and sisters level at the foot of the cross. He wants them to remember the awesome significance of what Christ had accomplished at Calvary. And further, he wanted the Corinthians to understand that even as they partook of the bread and the wine, that their participation in this holy feast was not just as a, a, to serve as an act of remembrance, but was also an act of declaration to proclaim the Lord's death, the gospel of Jesus. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do show forth, you do proclaim, you declare the Lord's death until He comes. I have a great concern about the evangelical church when it comes to communion these days. Because I think, unintentionally, but I think that in part we have drained it of its meaning and its purpose. We are so afraid of becoming Catholic in our doctrine and theology. We don't want to be guilty of believing that this is actually the body and the blood of Jesus, that we've come to think of this as just a saltine cracker and a little bit of Welch's. And it's been drained of its meaning and purpose. This does not save you. Taking the bread and drinking the wine does not save you. But, dear ones, let us not drain this table of its importance, significance, and meaning. And remember that for us as followers of Jesus, this is a grand demonstration, an object lesson, a picture of the amazing grace that has saved us and keeps us and prepares us for our eternal home in glory. And there is something, I don't understand the mystery of it all, but there is something that is, has a mysterious quality to it, that when we gather at this table, that the Lord is mysteriously present. His presence is real. 
And Paul wanted to remind the Corinthians that they have drifted in their observance of the Lord's Supper. They were coming together and having a meal. Clearly, they were breaking the bread and sharing the cup in the midst of the meal. But it didn't mean anything to them. It looked like the Lord's Supper, but it wasn't. So what does this have to do with us today? Just a final observation to to us, the church. The situation that Paul was addressing, divisions that were forming because of selfish behavior, self-centeredness. The situation in Corinth was not unique to the Corinthians, but I believe is a part of the church today, at least every church I have seen, including our own. It is inevitable, I think, that whenever you bring a large family of believers together, a, a diverse group of people together like we are, People from all walks of life, various backgrounds, various ways of looking at things, various doctrinal persuasions. There will be differences among us. But we must be awfully careful that we not let these differences destroy our unity and our worship. We are privileged as children of God. We are privileged to subordinate our own particular opinions and ideas and persuasions for the welfare and the good of our Christian community. That does not mean that anything goes in the church. Far from it. But it does mean that when we come together to worship the Lord, to share at His table, that we come together with a sense that it is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who brings us together and makes us one. And it is He, Jesus, that we love and worship. That our worship is based on the crucified and risen Lord. Our worship is not based on our own cultural background. We worship not our fraternities or our sororities, our clubs. We worship not the schools and universities that we have attended. We worship not the style of dress that we prefer. I wear a suit on Sunday. You wear shorts and sandals. I worship suits. You worship shorts and sandals. We worship not the American way of life. We worship not the fact that some of us play tennis, some ski, some are golfers, and others prefer bridge. We worship not our political ideologies and our economic viewpoints. The poor are not considered in the church of Jesus Christ. The poor are not considered inferior to the wealthy. The wealthy are not considered inferior to the poor. In the church, the male is not viewed as superior to the female, and the female is not viewed as superior to the male. The church is not a place for male chauvinists 
to move their agenda forward, nor is it a place where women's liberationists should take over. The church is not a place where the chief executive officer in the Fortune 500 company comes in and throws his weight around and demands this is how church will be done. Nor is the church the place where the passive-aggressive person who never makes it to the top in the business world but certainly knows how to slow down the, pr- the progress of human interaction gets his or her way by throwing their anarchist stink bombs into the middle of the Christian community. The church is not the place for people who are intellectually savvy to call the shots and where the one of average intelligence has to take a second seat. The ground at the foot of the cross, my dear ones, is absolutely level. Look around this room. You will find not only a symbol of God's sense of humor, (laughs) but you will find a symbol of His diversity. And yet, as diverse and different as we are, if we have humbled ourselves before God and opened our hearts up to His grace, we are one in Jesus. That, I think, was the genius and the beauty of the founder of our denomination, A.B. Simpson. He brought together Baptists and Episcopalians and Methodists and Presbyterians and all sorts of people from all kinds of backgrounds and cultures. And he said, we're going to follow Jesus. He's our head. He's our leader. And I believe that it's high time for the Alliance to rediscover those roots again. It might surprise you to hear me say this. But I believe that the church, this church, has been called to be radically different than the commonly known pattern that's out there in the world around us. We need to swim against the tide of the American penchant for partisanship. It might surprise you to hear me say today, I want to shock you a little bit. Are you ready? God is not a Republican, nor is He American. Is your heart beating? A couple of weeks ago, we had a prayer walk in the heart of our city, praying for our city and those who were in authority over us. And after we did our prayer walk, we gathered at McDonald's there off of State Street and had a cup of coffee together. And one of the gentlemen, my dear friend, said to me, as we were talking about politics, we were talking about Barack Obama and John McCain and Hillary Clinton and all kinds of things. Politic. And I expressed some fairly strong opinions. 
And my friend said, I, I never knew you were so strong in your political ideology. He said, why doesn't it come across in the pulpit? I'm surprised. Friends, when I stand behind this sacred desk, I do not stand here to make a political speech. I stand here to humbly accept the assignment that God has given me to declare faithfully the mysteries of God to the people of God. I do have political persuasions. If you want to know what they are, offer me a cup of coffee and I'll be glad to tell you. But when we are in the church, the church is not a place to be singing Yankee Doodle Dandy. But is a place to lift up high the name of Jesus who has redeemed us and is preparing a home in glory for us. We need to swim against the tide of public opinion. We are called by the Spirit of God to gather round the banner of Jesus Christ. And when we are tempted to hunker down into our own uh, uh, ideologies and, and take shots at other people who don't agree with us, we must ask God for mercy and grace because through God's mercy and grace in Christ, we have been made one in Jesus. And so like the Corinthians, we may need to ask God to forgive us for the way that we've not discerned correctly the body of Christ and the way that we're acting selfishly and self-centered. May we, as we come to this table this morning and next month and the month after that, if the Lord should tarry, May we never forget that this table is a table of mercy and grace. And that means that we can come as we are, so to speak. Admitting the ways that we are different, yet one. Admitting the ways that we have not valued each other and respected and honored one another as we should. Admitting the ways in which we as a church, not some other church, but we as a church have lost sight of the Lord Himself admitting that we are hungry and thirsty and dependent upon God. And when we come to this table and we handle the bread and we take the cup, may we not be guilty of draining of, it, of its meaning and its significance, but may we here taste and feel and handle what is to us the kindness and the goodness and the love of God, and be refreshed by His grace and His mercy. And as we do this, we not only remember, but we make a sermon. We preach a good sermon when we do this. We are proclaiming the Lord's death, the Lord's resurrection, and the Lord's coming in glory. So this table has great significance to us. Let's remember and let's proclaim. Shall we pray?
Forgive us, Lord, of our empty rituals and our petty distinctions. Lord, the feast that we're about to share is yours and not ours. It's your table that we come to. We're not worthy, O God, to even gather up the crumbs from beneath your table. And yet, in your mercy and grace, you welcome us as honored guests. So in these moments, as we prepare to share in this holy feast, help me and all of us to draw near with a sense of expectancy and with a living faith to receive as from your hands the bread of life and the cup of salvation and there find refreshment for our souls. It is for your love's sake that we pray this in Jesus' name.